Okay, good afternoon and welcome to today's class. Today we are going to be doing about the Torah reading of Parshas Bahaloscha, which is the third Torah reading in the Book of Numbers. And as you'll notice in this week's Torah reading, it mentions many different things, mitzvahs, which are given to the Jewish people. And one of them, one that we've mentioned and spoken about before, and especially while we were a few months ago, we spoke about it, which is the mitzvah of Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach. You know, many times when you're... Um, <clears throat> talking to different people about their dilemmas in life, if you want to call it, or the situations in life. And they think, you know, nah, it's not so bad. Well, really, the ship sailed long ago, or they don't realize it, or they don't come to re recognize it. And all of a sudden, when they come to a certain time in their life, a certain wake-up call, and say, you know what, <laughs> it ship sailed, we got to do something about it. And they say, what can I do about it? How can I go about it? How can I fix it? And it's just as important as a person has to take care of their physical well-being when they have, God forbid, a panic attack, a heart attack, a stroke, or anything else in their life, God forbid, and they right away immediately go call 911, go to the doctor, whatever it may be. So too, it's just as important that when a person has any type of, uh, any type of um, mental illness as well, it's just as important as dealing with it and making sure that a person takes care of it to the proper way and so on and so forth. But what would constitute and when would a person realize and recognize, just give me a second, how would a person recognize or at what point when we talk about a person struggling with any type of illness, when do they say, when do they have to sound the alarm? When do they all of a sudden say there's a problem here? So you take it from a child. When does a child realize that when their child realizes that they're in a problem, what do they go? They start screaming, please help me. When a person's at the stage of crying, screaming, let's say an adult who feels emotionally hurt and they're crying and screaming, and what are you gonna tell them? Oh, don't worry, it's all gonna work out. Do you really think they're listening to you? Do you really think that's gonna work? When they get to the stage of crying and screaming, at that point, no logical, theoretical, or way of explaining it is going to be able to help and get the person to calm down. It's going to take time to be able to give that person that energy, that faith, that strength, that they should be able to come back to themselves. What does this mean? And how does this all do with what we're talking about? You know, we live in a life that everything is structured by deadlines. Due dates, deadlines, whatever you want to call it. You don't pay your, uh, your electric bill on time, it gets cut off. You don't pay your mortgage at time, you get a mortgage fee, you get an interest, things start occurring, there's, le there's uh, everything you don't, there's a certain date and time for everything to occur. And if you miss the time, you pay the penalty. That's reality of life. The same idea is also we find in the Torah. If somebody says, comes along and says, you know, this Shabbos doesn't work out for me, can I keep Shabbos on Sunday? No, Shabbos is Shabbos, not Sunday. Same idea is also if a person wants to come along and say, you know, I wasn't able to keep Shabbos. Or even if a person wasn't his fault, the Holocaust survivors that in Auschwitz they couldn't keep Shabbos. Can they say, you know what, God, for all the 50, 60 Shabbases they missed during the Holocaust, can we take off 50 Sundays? No, they missed those Shabbases. God won't hold them to it, of course, but the end of the day is they can't make those days up. The same idea is also when it comes to any holiday. 
If you didn't fast Yom Kippur, you can't come in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Hanukkah and say, I want to fast because you missed out Yom Kippur. Or you say, you know what, sukkah is too cold for me to eat in the sukkah, so I'm going to wait until spring and then go eat in the sukkah. It doesn't work. Every single holiday has its time when it's done. And as we read in last week's, I'm um, sorry, in the book of Leviticus, we read about it when God tells us about the holidays. These are the holidays of God. To bring its sacrifices in its specific time. And what do the commentaries tell us clearly? Telling us that if a person misses out that opportunity to bring the sacrifice, you missed it. Missed the opportunity. What happens when it comes? All of a sudden, let's say it comes a sacrifice, he didn't bring it on that day. So there's a phrase in Hebrew which is called, The time has passed, the sacrifice no longer exists. Interesting thing, if you notice that from the Shavuos was on Sunday, but the seven days after Shavuos, we did not say Tachlun as well, was considered a miniature holiday. And the reason is because from Shavuos, even though Shavuos, every other Jewish holiday has seven days. Shavuos only has two days. So in order to give people a chance to make up, to give, to bring the sacrifices over seven days, the seven days after Shavuos are still considered part of the holiday, technically to bring sacrifices. But that's still considered a time. They're not makeup time. They are part of the holiday. That's why we don't say Tachlun as well. But what we see over here, same thing as with prayer. Let's say you missed the morning prayer and it's already nighttime. You can't say, okay, now let me daven three times because I missed the day. Mm-hmm. Every single thing that God gave us has a specific time. Even saying the Shema has a specific time in the morning and a specific time at night. You missed the morning, you say it at night, but you can't make up for the morning. So when we talk about the concepts of things being in its specific time, whether it's from sacrifices to prayers to holidays, every single thing has its specific time of when it's done. But all of a sudden, we come and we learn in this week's Torah reading a fascinating episode. There are people that come along and they are impure. What made them impure? So there's differences of opinions, how they became impure. All of the opinions are is that they were impure because they were burying somebody. They were doing a kind gesture and putting somebody to their internal rest. Someone is say they were the ones that were carrying the casket of Joseph throughout the desert. As you know, the Jewish people carried Joseph's bones with them until they came to the land of Israel and there it was buried. Others say that it was actually, if you recall, a few weeks ago, Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu, passed away on the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle. And at that time, Moshe's nephews, Mishal and Al-Tzafan, were the ones to bury those two people, Nadav and Avihu. And this was right before Pesach. And therefore, they did not have an opportunity to bring the Paschal offering. And over here comes along the problem, and they say, Moshe, it's not fear. Why should we lose out from bringing the Paschal offering? We were impure. We weren't able to bring the Paschal offering. And over here, what does Moshe do? Instead of Moshe coming along and saying, Sorry, Charlie, there's a time for a sacrifice to brought. Yes, you were impure. That's wonderful that you did a beautiful mitzvah. But everything has a time. But what does Moshe do now? Moshe turns to God and says, God, what do I do? And God comes along and says, a new mitzvah. That if a person is delayed and he wasn't able to make it to bring the first Paschal offering, he now has the opportunity to bring the second time, second chance to bring a Paschal offering. Maimonides talks about it and brings it into Jewish law as well. That this is not only for a person who may have just missed the, uh, missed the opportunity because he was even pure, but even a person who intentionally 
didn't come to the holy temple on the time of the sacrifices of Passover, came a month later, he still has an opportunity to bring the sacrifice offering. In fact, we see this in the Hasidic thought, it's taught that the concept of this that the Torah is teaching us is that it's never too late, that even a person who missed out the opportunity once, whether inadvertently or advertently, has the opportunity to make it up. And over here the question is that the Or HaChayim, the great commentator on the, tal, on the Chumash Tal, asks the following question and says, what exactly were these people asking? What, were they, what was their question? What did they think? You're impure, you can't bring a sacrifice. You miss the opportunity, you don't get to do it. They thought that all of a sudden the Torah is going to change? What change? What, what were they thinking? What were they asking Moses? They come to Moses, Moses, we didn't have an opportunity to bring the sacrifice. Great. In the book of Leviticus, we spoke about the laws of sacrifices. You're there, you bring it, you're not there, you don't bring it. I understand you were busy with important matters, but at the end of the day, there's a specific time when things are done. That's what the Torah tells us. The question even goes even more, why does Moshe even have to turn to God and ask him what to do? Didn't Moshe know the law that if you don't, not there on time, you just don't bring it? What was Moshe even entertaining? What was he thinking when he asked God? If God already told him that everything has an ex uh, a complete time when it has to be brought, Nobody came to Moses and said, Moses, it's too cold for us on Sukkot. Can we do it a month later? Can we do it in spring? Moses, Yom Kippur, I want to fast. I didn't fast the first time. Can I do it a later? We don't find any of that. All of a sudden it comes to Pesach. They start asking Moses, Moses, we were impure. We want to have a second chance. Moses, you said, sorry. There's a time and place for everything. So some want to say and to suggest, that actually what they were thinking about was because that in this case, they were not impure because of their own reason. They were impure because of a higher purpose. Meaning that they were either the ones carrying Joseph's bones or they had to bury none of you. So it was not only inadvertent that they were impure, it was something which was not even in their choice. And because of that, they asked that maybe they can change, but why only by the Paschal offering? And they want to suggest that because if we look at this, and why is it only by the Paschal offering that God responds that you have a second chance? Why not by any other sacrifices? Every single holiday, sacrifices were brought. So someone is explained because when it comes to the Paschal offering, the Paschal offering is something unique about the festival of Pesach. The festival of Passover is the gateway to Judaism. It's the time when every single Jewish person was born. For that reason, you know, Elijah the prophet comes to every Passover Seder, as we discussed, because this is the pinnacle. This is what shows the resemblance that a Jew observes. Almost every Jew in the universe observes some way of some such of Passover. It's the most commonly observed holiday, even more than Hanukkah. Because Passover is what you want to call the gateway to all the other holidays. And because of this, God says that even a person who is impure still has a second chance to be able to be able to get through this gateway. You know, like when you have your entrance exam to college, to be able to give everybody the opportunity to get to college, there's not one test you fail once, you still have the case to do it again, you have a second chance. Why? Because everybody should be given that opportunity. The same idea is also someone to suggest that the concept about Passover, because of its unique idealism and unique quality, that it speaks to the soul of every single Jew, 
God gives every single Jew the opportunity again to be able to do the Paschal offering. But the question is still not clear. If this was the logic, then when God gave the Jewish people the Paschal Mitzvah the first time, he should have said, fellas, there are two dates you can bring the Paschal offering. Date number one and date number two. If it was so important, if it's because it's an ideological holiday and it's the birth, birth of the Jewish people, fine, no problem. Make holiday number one, holiday number two. But that's not what happened. God gave them the Paschal offering. He told them what the laws are. He said when you have to bring it and any person that even brings it after midnight is liable of the penalty. And if a person misses bringing the holiday, in fact, one of the only positive commandments that have a penalization to it is the Paschal offering. That if a person does not bring the Paschal offering, he is penalized, just like circumcision, the only two. And over here, God doesn't come along and say, you know what, you got two chances. He only tells them about the first time. It's only after the Jewish people come along and say, you know what, we were impure. God says, you know, I'll make a second. If it was so important, do it the first time around. Why did he have to wait for the people to come and complain? And if they came and complained, then that's why he gave it to them. So what about every other holiday? If they'll come and complain, we'll give them a second chance. So before we go to the Hasidic explanation, there's some other explanations that are given. Some want to suggest that you'll notice something very unique in this parasha. This Torah reading begins when it tells us about the story of the Paschal offering, about the second Paschal offering. It says that it happened in the first month of the second year of the Jewish people going out of Egypt. If anybody was cognizant to notice that in the first Torah reading of the Book of Numbers, what does it say? When you open up the Book of Numbers, it says, and the Jewish people in the desert in the third month of the second year of them going out of Egypt. So this Torah reading, which is the third Torah reading, really happened before the first Torah reading. What does this teach us? A very important lesson. Which means there's no beginning and end in the, in the Torah. There's no historical, the Torah is not written in chronological order. One of the great reasons why the Torah was not written in chronological order is because the Torah is not a history book, and because the Torah should not be viewed as a history book in any shape or form, the Torah specifically was not written in chronological order. Therefore, you'll find stories that happened before come later. Stories that happened later will come before. For example, the count of the census of the Jewish people that we spoke about two weeks ago in the Torah reading happened in the third month, and this episode that we're reading about this week's Torah reading happened last in the, in the first month. Now, why pick out of all mitzvahs, the mitzvah of Pesach? is because, again, this underlines the theme of Pesach Sheni, which is never too late, teaching us that the mitzvah itself, there is no before and after in a mitzvah. The very fact that would, you always have an opportunity to have that relationship with God. The same way by Pesach Sheni, the second Paschal offering, God came along and said that you can bring it a month later. And you can always correct what you have done. So too in studying Torah and your relationship with God, there is no before and after. It's always there at your availability. But at the end of the day, the question is still here. Why is it that God made this as one of the mitzvahs, one of these concepts? And why isn't there an order in the Torah? Why shouldn't the Torah be, so to speak, in chronological order, put a system of effect to it? And again, as we mentioned before, if it was that important to underline and underscore the concept that a person can always make up for lost time, 
so to speak, make it part of the mitzvah to begin with. And one of the unique things, and the answer that Hasidism gives over here is very profound. And not only profound in a way that we can understand this mitzvah from a unique perspective, but also in how we can approach in recognizing somebody's pain and suffering and how we can help another individual. And also not only that in our relationship with God, what this means. Something very unique happened with the story of the Pesach Shein, which is the very fact that this happened, but that, and then did not happen by any other mitzvah. That all of a sudden over here, the Jewish people approached Moshe and said, it's not fear. By no other mitzvah. Yes, they complained about the food, it wasn't fear, about the meat, it wasn't fear, but not when it came to a mitzvah. There's no other mitzvah in the Torah which mentions that the Jewish people should, there was actually one other one, later on at the end of the book of Numbers, and again a new mitzvah was given, which we'll get to in a moment, which is the story of Salafchad, his daughters. But when we come to a mitzvah thus far, no mitzvah in the Torah have the Jewish people stood up and said, hey God, why should we lose out? All of a sudden it came to Pesach Sheini. 613 mitzvahs come down to this world. God gives the Jewish people all the different mitzvahs. And over here, the Jewish people are remembering about the exodus of Egypt. And all of a sudden, they see all the Jews around them celebrating this exodus, the birth of the Jewish people. And they're crying out and they're saying, why should we lose out? It's not fear. We want to be part of the celebration. And over here, God is teaching us an unbelievable lesson. Everything in Torah is exact to the order. Exactly what is necessary. God gave us everything, every single commandment, what is needed with the explanations and everything to its beauty. But then there comes a deeper level of mitzvahs. A level that comes out of the cry of the Jew. A level that shows a relationship that's beyond the technicality of the law. There's a relationship with God that we have by following, by doing what we're supposed to do. But then there's a cry that the child has to the parent and says, you know what, yes, you're not supposed to have sweets right now. Yes, it's after dinner. I'm, I shouldn't be giving it to you. But the child is crying. And all of a sudden, all the barriers break. The same idea over here is also the Pesach Sheni is telling us, you may have messed up. You may have missed the time. You may have lost your chance to bring the sacrifices. Okay, you have an option. Shrug your shoulders. I missed it. Too bad. The door's closed. Let me go someplace else. Or you can bang on the door and pray and ask and scream and say, Almighty God, I still want to have a relationship. I want to stay connected. If it touches you, if it bothers you, then we'll touch God. Then we'll bother God. Story told of the Baal Shem Tov. I usually say the story on Rosh Hashanah many times. Balshemtov once called his student Rabzev Wolf Kitsis, and he asked him to be the one to blow the shofar in the shoe of the Balshemtov that Rosh Hashanah. Of course, he was very honored, but he asked the Balshemtov if he can tell him what Kabbalistic meditations he should prepare before sounding the shofar. And the Balshemtov gave him all the different things he had to do, and of course, for weeks before Rosh Hashanah, he was preparing himself and wrote down notes, and he had a little note with him that he would come to the stage on the bima, before sounding the shofar, to look at those meditations before sounding the shofar. He gets up to the stand, to the bima, everybody's watching him, Balshemtov's shul is packed. He takes out his little note to read from, it's not there. 
his note is gone. He looks one packet, the other packet, he doesn't know what to do. He's totally embarrassed, totally doesn't know what to do. Covers his head with the talus, begins to cry, and sounds the shofar out of this broken, crying heart that he disappointed his teacher, he disappointed God, he disappointed the community. What kind of person is he that he should be the one to represent everybody? As he finishes sounding the shofar, just covers himself with the talus and walks off in shame from the bima. But all, and all of a sudden you see everybody's looking at the Baal Shem Tov, and there's a big smile on the Baal Shem Tov's face. And they asked him, what do you mean? Why is the Baal Shem Tov smiling? And the Baal Shem Tov calls him over and says, Reb Zev, this is the best shofar blowing I've ever heard. He says, what do you mean? I didn't know any of the meditations. He says, let me explain to you. Every single meditation is a key to another level, to another way, another way of connecting to God. But then there's a master key that opens up all the gateways and allows us to connect to God in every single way, better than any key. And that is from the depth of the heart, the crying of the heart. And that's what you did. And that's why you were able to get to all the greatest levels. Take, for example, in the Torah reading of Genesis, the people of Sodom were wicked, cruel, mean people. But at the same time, they were Noahites. They were not commanded any commandments at the time. They didn't have the commandment of being charitable. Why did they have to be hospitable? But the Torah, when it talks about why God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he say? What does the Torah use the terminology? There's a cry that's coming out to me. Somebody is yelling, somebody is crying to me. And their Medrash says, what was crying? There was a woman who was caught feeding a poor person. And they took the poor person and they took the woman and they tortured them and they cried out to God. When God heard the crying of the poor girl and the crying of the poor person who was helped. What does God say? Yes, maybe you weren't given the laws of the Noahide laws. But such torture, such misery that brought about the crying of this young girl, I can't ignore. And therefore God gave them the punishment that was needed for them. The same idea you also look in Rosh Hashanah, going back to Rosh Hashanah for a moment. Rosh Hashanah, you know, he sound the show for a hundred blasts. The Medrash says something very fascinating. You know why a hundred blasts? Because the mother of Sisra cried a hundred tears for her son. Now, who was Sisra? So if you recall, there was a woman by the name of Devorah. She was a prophetess, a judge for the Jewish people. Her assistant was Barak. And there was a general, Sisra, who was hurting the Jewish people. He was not from the great righteous people in our generation, let's put it that way. He was probably one of the enemies of society. And he was the general of the army at the time. And what happened was, Barak was chasing him. And finally, Yael found Sisra. She took him into his house and she killed him. And that's how the Jewish people were able to live happily ever after, after he was killed. But Sisra's mother was crying for him. And she cried a hundred tears. And the Torah, the Talmud tells us that because of those hundred tears, we have to counter the hundred tears that were done for an evil person with a hundred tears for ourselves to be able to inspire on high. But who's counting the tears of this woman? What is this teaching us? Very simple. 
that God is telling us that even a person who's crying for an evil person. But when there's crying, when there's begging, when there's yelling on high, asking God with tears, even the mother of Sisera, her tears are counted on high. Every single one of us have that opportunity and recognize that when you cry, when it reaches to a level above and beyond, and that's why we need a hundred blasts to counter those hundred tears. You know, the story of Pesach Sheini, the time of Pesach Sheini, is on the 14th of year. And the 14th of year always comes out about four, year, four days before Lag Bomer. And who do we celebrate in Lag Bomer? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And the Talmud tells us a story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. I think I said the story once before, but it's a good story nonetheless. That once there was this couple that didn't have children after about 15 years of marriage, and according to Jewish law, they had to get divorced because since they weren't able to reproduce. So they went to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai and asked him advice and said, what should we do before we get divorced? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai says, you know what, the same way when you got married, you had a big party. The same thing is also when you get divorced, you should have a big party. Make a beautiful party with good meat, good wine, and all that stuff. Oh, well, if that's what the rabbi does, they do, they follow to the letter of the law. And the, ra and the husband, he made sure to have the best wine, he drank well, and he had wonderful, wonderful things. While he was, while he was uh, pretty drunk, his wife says, you know what? I'm sorry, he says to his wife, we're about to get divorced, pick whatever you want. Take whatever you want, it's yours. Take it home, it's all yours. She said, fine. So she told her friends there, the gentleman there, take this guy, my husband, and bring him to my parents' home. He said, I can pick whatever I want. And she brought him home, and he, he wakes up in the morning, he says, what's going on? She said, you told me I can take the one thing I want. I want you, I want to stay with you. There's nothing more important. They went back to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai said, what do we do now? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai gave them the blessing and they had a child. The question is, why couldn't they bless them the first time? Why did he have to wait for them to make a party and all of a sudden? So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai explained to them. He says, the first time, you were expecting it to happen. There was no crying, there was no desire, there was no passion. But all of a sudden you saw you were getting divorced. The love for one another was penetrated, was came to the greatest extent that it penetrated the heaven. Your cries reached on high. That now you were able to have the blessing for children. The same idea we see, that we see the story every Yom Kippur with one of the greatest, a great student by the name of Rabbi Lazar ben Dudaya. Rabbi Lazar ben Dudaya was an individual who he tried to do every sin in the book until once he was traveling very far away to be able to meet one of the beautiful harlots, to be able to have an affair with her. And as he came to her and he wanted to be able to be with her, she tells him, you're a lost cause. You're a lost cause, Elazar ben Dudaya. There's no way that you can repent. It's over, case closed, you're a lost cause. He got to, says, what do you mean? I'm a lost cause? How is that possible? So he turned to the heavens, he turned to the mountains, he said, me, a lost cause, and started to cry and cry and cry. But the Talmud says, he put his head between his knees and he cried till the soul left his body. At that moment, a voice from heaven came out. Lucky are you, Elazar ben Dudaya. 
who is able to acquire a portion in the world to come in just one moment. What changed? It doesn't even say Elazar with a die. They called him Rebbe Elazar, Rabbi. What did he do? He cried. He meant it from the heart. And when you cry from the heart, it goes straight up to heaven. There's nothing stopping it. And you are able to change anything that happened in the past just with a cry from the heart. This is what we see that the Torah tells us. That the only way that they were able to change the past, the only way the people of Pesach Sheini came along to Moshe, and coming along to saying, how were they able to change a law in the Torah? The Torah says you have to bring it on the 14th of Nisan. They wanted to bring it later. But what happened? What changed? They cried. They screamed out. They said, Lo money, gara, why should we lose out? When they were able to say, why should we lose out? They were able to bring about within themselves a level of repentance, a level of crying, that God to come along and say, one second, I got to change my mind. Once This, this got to change. Because they reached such a level, which was all of a sudden much greater and higher than ever before. This is over here what the Torah is telling us. The same idea is when it comes to the Jewish people. Throughout the desert, throughout their travels, the same idea happened as we mentioned. It was another one time where people complained and the law was changed. Right before the Jewish people are about to enter the land of Israel, we're going to read about it in the story of Pinchas. And they split up the land, every tribe gets and every according to their family. And there were four daughters that came along to Moshe and said, why should we lose out a portion in the world of uh, the land of Israel? And what had happened over here? God, Moshe again, same idea came to Moses, came to God. God said, yes, they should also get. And over here, the law was changed. What did they think, these women? That they're going to change the law? Why should they change? What would become because of it? And over here again, the daughters of Tzalafcha taught us. Why should we lose out? And God changed the law. The same idea we find, the same thing that happened with the Pesach Sheni, with the Paschal offering, the same idea is also that happened with the daughters of Tzalafchad. The daughters of Tzalafchad were not looking to get real estate in the land of Israel. They weren't worried about inheritance for their father. They wanted to have the relationship with God to be able to do the mitzvahs in the Torah that are prescribed in order to live in the land of Israel. The same idea is told to us every single one of us. We have that opportunity to cry out to God and say, law money, God, why should we lose out? We too want to bring the Paschal offering. We too want to have a portion in the land of Israel. God is waiting for us to cry out and he will respond in kind. If we are stubborn and cry out to God if sincerely and say, until when is this exile going to go on? Enough to the pain and enough to the suffering, enough to the misery, enough to the what's going on. Then God will respond. But until we say, ah, things are good, so why should I complain? It's not a question of complaining. Does it hurt you? Does it bother you? Because when do you cry? When you're in pain. When do you cry? When it's really hurting you. Which is even more so also doesn't only teach us with our personal relationship with God, but it also in our interpersonal relationships that we have with one another. The same way we started off today saying that when a person cries out, we should not say, ah, he's fake and he means it nothing. When somebody is crying, we must be attentive and listen to their cries. Even though normally we may say, ah, let him just, you know, but if he's crying, 
We have to say, what is this person really bothering them? What really? We can have many different excuses and reasons and theories and everything else. But we gotta have to see, we have to hear the cry of the Jewish child. We have to hear the cry in another person. And we should never say, well, it's exaggerated, it's that and that and the other. Pesach Sheni tells us, this week's Torah reading tells us, it's never too late for ourselves to have a relationship with God, and it's never too late to be there for another person as well. If we just cry, we just ask, God will respond in kind, answering all our prayers, giving us all what we need, even before we ask for it, with true salvation and redemption.